welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Alrighty, alrighty, so we're just going to continue on here from the last podcast because I'm in the mood and I know all you guys are eager, plus I now have my second glass of wine, so things are flowing smoothly. So the next question is going to be here from Jeff Jenkins, and he's got a pretty cool um, comment here because I've actually dealt with this in the past. He says that he can shoot an X at 20 yards. Um, expl- explain what the magical process is that one needs to go through to shoot an X at 20 yards 30 times in a row and repeat that performance three days in a row. So, yes, that is the magical question. And I can tell you that if I had um, an easy guarantee for that, that would definitely be something I would charge for because then I'm sure everybody would pay for it and we would all be shooting 900s every Vegas and archery would get pretty boring. But, uh, you know, when it comes to being able to do that, uh, when I work with students, I, you know, I talk with them about several things, but um, one of them is learning how to shoot a 10. Um, and everybody has a slightly different way to do that. But, when it comes to shooting a 10, you have to be able to learn how to then repeat it, which is ultimately when good coaching comes in because learning to repeat a performance is obviously what accelerates you to the top of the pile, so to speak. So um, I've always just really focused on one arrow at a time because uh, the reality is you can't control what hasn't happened and you can't control what did happen because obviously it already did it's history but um you can control what is happening and you know you really have to just focus on trying to increase the amount of good shots that you have in your quiver uh one arrow at a time and you know everyone is going to probably do that slightly different but for the most part when it comes to coaching learning to set people up in a position and in a foundation that allows them to be the most consistent the most times in a row is really what coaching and learning good form is all about. Um, There's always going to be exceptions to the rule, and I've been beaten by the exceptions to the rules more times than not, but I can also tell you that uh, for myself, Uh, as well as many other high-level archers out there, building yourself in a a foundation in a shooting form that is repeatable and consistent and can be kept in check easily um, is going to increase your odds for doing that. So that really comes down to being able to keep your posture and your bone alignment correct. And that's For me, I'm a big believer in proper posture, having a proper T formation, you know, having your feet under your hips, your hips under your shoulders, your shoulders, elbow, front wrist, all in alignment. The more that you change that, the more that you start relying on muscle. So the more that your muscle will vary over multiple shots, uh, multiple distances, and especially over multiple days. Um, you know, I don't think anyone out there would disagree with me when they say some days you wake up in bed, you just feel like like you're able to do anything you want. The next day you don't. And, you know, when you're relying on your mental power or your, your muscular power, um, you're way more likely for those things to not be as consistent and repeatable, which is why I keep falling back on building form and foundation and structure that's really built on keeping things simple, keeping your steps simple, and also using your bow alignment, or I mean your bone alignment, uh, to keep your bow steady. 
more so than your muscle. You know, if you start to bend that front arm, you start to rely heavily on your front tricep. So as that tricep will fatigue, obviously it'll start to bobble a little bit. And then sometimes, um, you know, to secure things, you might crunch your shoulder back or you might slightly hitch your hip. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that just start to happen one at a time. So really what I started to do, and I've talked about this in the past, is I really rate my performance off my good shots versus not so good shots. And, you know, if I can come off a shooting line knowing that I made 38 good shots, then I'm happy with my performance, even if the rest of the tournament field is not happy with my performance. Um, You know, I don't judge a performance off, you know, awards. I judge performance off execution. And I know that from myself, uh, being an athlete in multiple sports, that execution always ends up equaling a reward at some point or another. So, you know, I look at reality. Reality is I'm not going to win every single weekend, even if I really 100% focused at being at my best and 100% dedicated everything I had to being in a tournament. I mean, you look at, you know, one week, Rio Wild shooting a new world record at 50 meters. The next week, uh, Jesse Broadwater is shooting another phenomenal score at Reading. You know, every week things change slightly. So you're not going to win them all. But what you can do is put yourself in the position to at least be in striking distance by being consistent and repeatable. So focus on one shot at a time. Um, Build a systematic shot routine to where you can set yourself up with your foundation. Um, And then just work on repeating what it is that you're good at each and every single arrow. Um, Then when it comes to performance three days in a row, what I found is when I go to tournaments, you really, really need to focus on trying to keep your routine at your tournaments the same as you do when you're at your house. Um, You know, for me, sleep time, when I'm asleep, when I'm not asleep, when I'm eating, how much I eat, what I eat, all that uh, affects performance. And, you know, I know that a lot of people that try texting me after 8 o'clock, I'm probably already in bed. Um, You know, I... I go to bed early, I get up early. So when I'm at a tournament, for me, it's no big deal to get up at 5 a.m. to be at a tournament field eaten and ready for practice by 6 so I can get to my shooting line easily in enough time. Whereas some people that aren't like that and they're used to going out and partying a while and they're used to staying up till 2, well, if they're going to sleep at 2 and waking up at 6, well, after a few days, that starts to wear on you, and your performance is going to be a result. So try, you know, the big the big secret to being repetitive is to be repetitive. If you want to be profe- uh, repetitive at your tournament, then you need to be repetitive when you're not actually shooting. And try to maintain your daily routine so that you can guarantee that you feel the same today as you do tomorrow as you do the the third and final day. And a lot of times you almost need to feel better on that third day than what you did on the first. Which if you learn to really follow a routine and stick with it, and even if your friends are saying, well, we're going to wait and go to the Outback at 9 o'clock tonight um, with these guys and... If you know deep down, well, that means you're not getting back to your room till 11.30, well, then just tell them, hey, I'll be fine. I'm going to go grab something over here and get back to the hotel room. Try not to wake me up when you come in. Because uh, that's what I did, and it worked. So, And I know that it's worked for multiple sports. Um, next question here is from Jordan Dusterhoff. Um, he's asking, what are the most important keys in order to develop into a better archer or bow hunter? And part of that is going to stem off of it exactly what I just said, and that is learning to be repetitive in your routine. 
be repetitive in your practice routine, be repetitive in your game routine, and make your archery a lifestyle and not just a weekend hobby if you're wanting to be consistent about it. Um, the same's true with a bow, you know, as a bow hunter. Um, you know, I know that for me, like on this past, this past, um, few weeks when I was way up in the mountains, uh, you know, we weren't getting back until 1130 at night and then, you know, we start cooking and, and by the time you eat, you know, some people want to stay up and have a few drinks and everything, but I know deep down that I need a certain amount of sleep. I need a certain amount of rest in order to be able to be a hundred percent the next day. Um, I want to be a hundred percent ready to seize every single moment of opportunity. And I don't know how many times I've been the only guy successful in a hunting camp. And I can guarantee you it's because I've always had the discipline to be able to say, you know, I'm not going to stay up. I don't want to go out. I don't want to go drinking. I'm not going to miss the hunt in the morning. Um, you know, I focus to make sure that, you know, I like to be the first one out of camp and I like to be the last one back. And I like to be the one getting the most sleep uh, with those other two things in mind. In a tournament situation, um, it was the same. You know, when I went to a tournament, I really focused on uh, trying to keep my routine, get up in the morning, drink a lot of water. Um, I would even still do my fitness routines at my tournaments. Uh, I would get up, I would run a certain distance, I would try to find a gym, otherwise I'd do a workout in my room. Um, I made it seem like it was just another day at my house. The only difference was I woke up at a different bed. Um, that's a big part of being able to be uh, repetitive and, and learning to be consistent as an archer as well as a bow hunter. Now, aside from that, obviously having a good shot routine is going to be essential. And my shot routines focus on basic fundamentals, things that I think are critical to being able to set yourself up in proper alignment. Uh, your stance, your grip position, your front shoulder position, your anchor, uh, looking through your peep sight properly, and then also learning to pull and follow through it's a systematic checklist um it's something that i just take step by step by step by step and it's a simple step process i try to keep it simple because then it's easier to be more repetitive at it a lot of times the more stuff you add to your shot routine the easier it is to forget one little thing or the easier it is to let one thing slide while you're trying to focus on all these other things that are happening um, when it comes to foundation and proper shooting form i can tell you that you know having a straight perfectly straight and vertical torso and a horizontal uh, upper portion is really going to be the keys because it allows you to utilize your bone structure. And then obviously having a bow that's set up to where you can be in that foundation and shoot in that form uh, without having a lot of contact with your face or your front arm uh, or a lot of having without having a lot of torque in your system to where you might have improper aeroflight. So try to keep it simple and try to keep it the same each and every time. It'll make a huge difference. Um, with hunting, I've said it time and time again, I like to be the first one out and I like to be the last one back. Um, sometimes I'm not the first guy out, which I definitely don't like that, but I'm certainly willing to put in long, long days on this last hunt. Um, you know, I can tell you it was maybe an average of four and a half hours sleep a night. Uh, they were 18-hour days with, you know, some cooking in between. Uh, but in the end, I was successful because I made that sacrifice, and that's what it takes uh, for anybody. So the next series of questions here, there's a few of them, are going to be pertaining to hinge releases because, and this is something that I've been getting asked quite a bit about lately, and I think it's because there's several shooters that, are kind of stamping their names on some releases that are out on the market. So obviously, you know, the companies are taking advantage of, 
a certain sheeter endorsing a certain release or you know maybe letting a sheeter design their own release to keep their contract or whatever it is but um you know hinge releases are a great training aid to learning to sheet a surprise release there's no doubt about it it is what i learned from um some of them feel better in your hands some of them pivot better some of them pull easier I haven't tried them all. I haven't tried all the new ones that are on the market, but I'm sure things have come a long way since I was shooting a Carter uh, Revenger that Randy Ulmer gave me, which is pretty much about as basic of a handle and a a hook system as you could ever put on a D-loop. But again, I like basic systems. I like basic stabilizers. I like basic sights, light sights. Um, I like releases that I know um, can easily uh, be adjusted to the speed that I need and also be consistent in my hand positioning. Originally on this subject, I was actually wanting to get uh, Jesse Broadwater in on this conversation, but Jesse told me that he just got a fresh load of gravel delivered that he has to spread out. So Um, unfortunately no one went to help him spread his gravel so we're not able to have Jesse on this part of the conversation but I did really value his opinion because obviously Jesse shot a hinge release for a long long time Um, shoots his a lot like I shot mine and uh, has been probably one of the most successful archers of all times with it so um, the other thing too is just so all of you out there know um I'm actually doing a small video here pretty soon for Peterson's Bowhunting uh, for their website, just kind of showing you how to position a release aid in your hand for different types of release aids. And I'm actually writing an article, a feature article for uh, an f- upcoming Peterson's Bowhunting uh, magazine called Mastering the Release Aid, where I actually am I'm going to show you Uh, the different styles of releases, how to shoot each one, and then also how to hold each one in your hand, which I think is critical. Um, You know, when it comes to the hinge releases, there's really several different ways to shoot them, and I know that um, this has been talked about a lot of times because several different pros have different ways to make that release fire, which really stems off of what I just said um, a few minutes back, which is, a lot of different people have different ways to shoot a 10, right? So for me, I shot mine the way that Randy Ulmer shot his, which would be I would pull back with all of the pressure on my index finger and my thumb. Um, I would come to my anchor position. I would you know, settle into my peep sight with my scope, level my scope, get my pin to the target, and then I would slowly start to try to increase some pressure with my elbow pulling back, you know, try to increase just a little bit of back pressure. I wouldn't try to pull through the shot, so to speak, and rotate around through because that release has to manipulate. The release has to hinge in order for that hook to rotate on the half moon and trip and fire. So what I would do is as I would feel that small pressure in the middle of my back as I'm trying to pull that elbow back, I would slowly start to relax my index finger and point my finger towards the target. And as I did that, that release would rotate around and it would fire and give me a surprise shot. When I started out, I started out with one. Uh, there got to be a time where I could, my brain could start to slowly pick up on how much that release was actually starting to move before it fired. So I ended up having several releases that were all set at a slightly different speed to where I really learned that I didn't know what each release would do for, for firing speed because I'd keep them all in my release pouch. I'd reach around in there, pull one out. Some were fast, some were slow. Um you know, Ulmer had one that didn't even fire. Um, and that's something that I learned from him. It, it, it really tricked my mind into not knowing what was going on. And it made a huge, huge difference on being able to just learn to trust your pin on that target as you relax your finger and pull that elbow back. 
Now, some of the people today shoot their hinge releases by making a fist and actually manipulating that release around and really rolling it around. And a lot of times those people have a lot more travel in their release than the people that are actually just doing a little bit of relaxing. Um, I don't personally like to have travel. To me, travel in a release or a click in a release ends up building into target panic at some point. So um, by shooting my release with the relaxing um, method, I was able to shoot my release with very minimal travel and you know, which has its, the only downside is you have to be very careful when you draw it back. And, you know, once I got into that position and started to pull, it taught me to be relaxed in my shot. That's what I liked about it. Um, Having to twist your release or make a fist or manipulate the release or rotate it around, you're having to add tension. And what I found is, when you get a lot of pressure on you in a tournament, sometimes it gets really hard to increase muscle tension. You're so tense as it is that your muscles don't really have the ability to add extra tension. You know, a lot of times if you're, uh, you know, you look at people with like crazy buck fever to the point where they get so nervous that they can't even draw their bow back. Um, you know, it's just because there's so much tension there. Imagine being at full draw and you have to pull and manipulate and rotate a release around. Chances are you would creep forward before you would ever be able to do that. However, if all you have to do is maintain that pressure and actually start to just relax your finger, maintain your pressure and just relax, relax, relax until that shot goes off, you're going to be way more likely to be able to make that happen, which is what I ended up falling back on. Um, When it comes to actually, you know, uh, Nils, uh, Krosgak, can't pronounce your name, Nils, sorry. Um, You wanted to hear about the bear and then adjusting adjusting a release to fit comfortable. I'll talk about my bear on the next podcast or maybe the one after, depending on how how long I take to get through some of these here. Um, But when it comes to release comfort, I like a release that when you grab it in your hand, you're able to wrap your fingers around it, keep your hand, the palm, you know, the main part of your hand straight, wrap your fingers around there to where the release is sitting right through that middle row of knuckles. Um, it needs to be comfortable in your hand. There's a lot of different shaped releases. None of them are better than the other because what's important is that you're comfortable with the release that you have. Um, so choose that, whether it's a light one or a heavy one or a small one or three-finger one or a four-finger one. Um, a lot of the hinges I always shot with two fingers just because I wanted less finger on the release. All I like to be able to do is focus on relaxing that index finger as I try to build continual pressure against the rear wall of the cam. So I just really like that. Then when it comes to adjusting like say a wrist strap release, I personally preferred the buckles because they were more consistent and hooking them in the exact same length all the time. And then I would adjust the actual head of the release to where I could fully curl my finger around the trigger. You know, the tip of your finger is the most sensitive part. So if you're always activating your trigger with the very tip of your index finger, then you really start to easily be able to predict how much pressure you put on that trigger before it fires. But by getting that trigger inside of your index finger like wrapped around in the middle of that middle you know that middle knuckle of your index finger then you're able to get a lot more meat around that trigger kind of relaxed portion of your hand and then focus on keeping your finger in that exact same position as you pull your elbow towards the wall behind you and end up pulling through that trigger uh, with that trigger being in a non-sensitive part of your finger which is going to really help you find that repeatable and surprise shot that you're looking for. You need to have a surprise shot every shot. 
If sometimes you know the shot's going to happen, then that means somehow or another you're predicting it, so you don't really want to have that. Uh, moving on to the next question is going to be here from Brian Whitmore. And uh, Brian's saying, I think the number of people I see wanting to try hinge to cure their target panic issues um, is a good topic, but I would like to know how to actually set up that hinge for a first-time user. And that's a great question because obviously dental bills are expensive. And uh, even though my good buddy Matt Stewart, uh, his wife is my dentist, uh, it's still not cheap if you knock a few teeth out. So what I would really recommend is that you first learn to shoot your your um, your release with, like in my case, I shot the Revenger. Um, I shot that with... Um, using an air bow or using a piece of string. Obviously, you probably can hear someone calling me uh, behind me. I doubt it's anyone important. I'm sure it's a solicitor, so we'll wait for that to stop. One of the many joys of having your beat laboratory down in your lower office instead of at a super high-end studio. But uh, anyway, um, I used either a piece of loop material that I cut in a very long length, tied it to where it was a big circle to where when I held it in my front hand, my anchor position was the same at full draws when I held my bow. Or you can get like a Genesis um, or a Genesis Pro, put an air bow attachment on it and set it up to where it's your draw length. And those are great ways to start really focusing on how to shoot a release. I mastered shooting so many different styles of release aids and mainly the thumb trigger when I started shooting FIDA because I, I um, hadn't been able to shoot a thumb trigger for years and years and years. But I did finally master that um, once I was making sales calls from my office because I, all I did was uh, talked on speakerphone or use my headset most of the day. Uh, I would just make cold sales calls and meanwhile I would just sit there with my piece of string material and raise up, come to my anchor, uh, point my thumb up in the air, put my thumb on something on the wall and act like I was aiming at it and then just slowly start to pull that elbow back as I relaxed my index finger and got that release to fire. And what I would do is I would adjust the release to where I could get it to go at a pretty good speed. Uh, my shots take anywhere from 12 to 15 seconds, you know, once I start to draw um, to when the arrow fires. So I really liked having a release that I could kind of be pulling on and relaxing that finger for about five to seven seconds before it would fire. And uh, everything just really got to be super comfortable. And once I started doing it on my bow, it didn't feel any different than when I was doing it on that piece of string or when I was doing it on an air bow in my house. You know, a lot of times when I taught my boy how to shoot, uh, same thing. I gave him a, a small bow with an air bow attachment on it. And I don't know if FiberCheck still makes those little air bow attachments, but I had that on there. And uh, I would just tell him to draw back, point the air bow at something, um, focus on that object, and then let off of his safety, and then just continue to pull until the release fired. And at the, at the time, and actually still to this day, he's shooting the Carter Evolution. So he's doing the same basic fundamentals as what he learned. Um, you know, dang, I guess it's been almost eight years ago now. And I can tell you, he makes flawless, surprise, effortless shots because he committed 100% to shooting that tension-activated release. And he just really strives on pulling and having a surprise shot way more than where his arrow actually hits. So that's a great thing that you can do as a beginner to learn how to do that properly. The next question here is from Sam Lovelace III, and he's saying, how do you eliminate bow hand torque, um, and how can you tell when you're holding it properly or not? Um, and he says that all, all your bows 
tune with the rest way to the left. Um, some even require twisting the yoke so that you can get them. Um, you know, you say that your bare shaft shows tail right. So, um, you know, I guess what you're asking overall is how do you know what the proper bow grip position is? Um, you say that you're aware of the basic grip and you don't death grip your bow or overlap the lifeline. Um, you think it may be a, a wrist position kind of thing. I disagree. Um, a lot of times different bows, first off, different bows will offer different types of pressures. And a lot of these bows that have um, some of the roller guard systems where there's a lot of pressure on those cables while the bow's at rest, um, they'll magnify any amount of torque that you have. And uh, one thing, you know, there's some bow companies out there that I just really don't like their newer designs because... You know, if you take a long stabilizer and screw it on some of these hunting bows and then draw their bow back, if you see that stabilizer swing all the way out the right side of the the riser at full draw, that's showing you exactly how much pressure there is on that cable system or on that cable guard system at full draw because as you pull back and that tension builds on the back part of the, those cables, it'll actually push the back part of the bow to the left and you can see the stabilizer swing way out to the right. Um, that's always kind of drove me nuts because what that will show you is, and what you can also know uh, or look at to know that this is happening, is if your pins are lined up way outside of your arrow to the left, then that's telling you you have a lot of riser flex as you come to full draw. For me, what I do when it comes to my grip is I always think two things. Does it look right and does it feel right? The first thing that I do is I look down at my bow when it's you know either hanging on my wrist, wrist strap or if the stabilizer has it sitting on the, you know, if it's resting on the stabilizer, I'll go ahead and tell my bow to stop. And when I do that, I look down at my hand and when I tell it to stop, my thumb is going to be at about a 45 degree angle. Then what I do is I'll slide my palm all the way up against the top of that riser shelf so the riser shelf's touching perfectly the top of my hand. And then I do what's called leaning on the door and I'll lean down on that bow to there where there's consistent even pressure from the top of the the pad of my palm all the way down to the bottom of my thumb bone. I don't turn my thumb to where it's pointing straight up in the air because if you do that if you look down at your bow when it's you know just sitting there on your stabilizer and you turn your thumb straight up and down then what you're doing is you're turning your bottom of your palm across the grip if your thumb's at a 45 degree angle and you push on that grip then most of your bow grip should all be from the lifeline of your hand towards your thumb that's going to be critical for minimizing torque on your bow the one thing that I'll tell you is I'm in the same position as you as I know um, I know what a good position for my grip should be. I know what it should feel like. Um, I really know what I'm looking for. And I think that when it comes to me shooting right-handed, I have a completely torque-free grip. However, once I started shooting left-handed so that I could shoot this mouth tab, um, I learned exactly how I almost felt like a beginner and someone that I was always teaching, Hey, look, you're doing this wrong with your grip. You're causing twist because I was really fighting left and right, um, arrows. I was having a lot of arrows going left or right. I could see in my arrow flight that it was really not good. And for the most part, I was trying to convinced myself that it was more related to the mouth tab and not so much my grip. So what I ended up doing was I ended up changing from my Sherlock's to an IQ bow sight um, just because the Sherlock's that I had here didn't have the retina lock in them and I used the IQ so that I could use that retina lock device which really if you adjust it properly it shows you 
that little black dot in the middle of the green dot will move around to show you how much your front hand position is changing. And when I was trying to shoot right-handed or, you know, left-handed bow with my right hand, it was unbelievable how much torque I was putting in that grip without ever even knowing it. <coughs> my hand was in a good position. It just wasn't in the same position each and every time and the pressure difference on the riser was substantial. The IQ bow sight is with that retina lock is something that I think people can use as an everyday training device. And you know I can tell I'll be honest with you guys, yes, they they're definitely a company that I've worked directly with. Um, I've shot Sherlock for lots and lots and lots of years. Um, Field Logic actually owns Sherlock as well as IQ Bow Sights. But um, they're products that I really think have a benefit to people. And um, a good buddy of mine, uh, Marty, is a perfect example because he is an archer that shoots every single day. He's a bow hunter. He he has nothing to do with target. He's a bow hunter. He loves archery. He's committed to shooting his bow every day. He shoots all the time. And it really frustrates him when one day he has to move his sight to hit in the middle again, and the next day he's moving his sight to hit right back in that same exact spot. And it's like you're constantly correcting to then correct again and it leads you know why am I doing this you start thinking to yourself so I actually told him I'm like you need to get one of these retina locks on your site so that you can actually see the variance in your grip position and he also struggled with shooting perfect holes through paper so we went ahead and got this I worked on him for the proper position of his grip and he got to where he could shoot perfect bullet holes through the paper um, and when he looked at his IQ or looked at the retina lock it was in the perfect center position and he gets perfect arrow flight well if he pulls back and all of a sudden he sees he has really poor arrow flight the next shot he'll pull back and look at that retina lock and he'll see that holy cow I'm doing something different in my front hand position again and it's really taught him how to feel those small variances on your front bow grip that have a huge effect on where your arrows actually land. So that's a great starting point. Um, you know, the type of bow you shoot could certainly affect how much your center shot is in or out or where your pins line up with your arrow shafts. So for me, that part is uh, is kind of hard to tell you exactly. Um, but the main thing is go through those steps that I told you. When you have your bow sitting down on the stabilizer and there's no pressure on your hand, tell, tell your bow to stop, which is going to put your thumb at 45 degrees. Slide it up against the top part of uh, your palm, which will be the, you know, the lower part of your riser shelf slide it all the way up so that your position of your hand up and down isn't different each and every shot slide it all the way up and then lean down on it to where that grip follows your thumb bone right down and you want even pressure from the top all the way to the bottom you focus on that and then having a relaxed hand to where your fingers aren't straight out and they're not death grip in the bow then that's going to be a really, really good starting point for you. I can guarantee you to having a good position with your hand. Also, when it comes to having crazy tears through paper, if you feel like everything's perfect and you feel like your front hand position is good, but you're still having those tears, sometimes you need to take the stabilizing systems off your bow too because if you start shooting too much side weight or too much front weight, Sometimes it'll cause an adverse effect on your actual reaction that your bow's making as you shoot. That weight wants to swing to one side and it's actually turning that bow as the arrow's projecting through it and it can give you some funky tears. So a lot of times when I'm paper tuning, I like to paper tune 
with the exact stabilizer setup that I'm going to be using. And if I can't cure a, tar uh, a tear through the paper, then a lot of times I'll start removing some of those side weights or adjusting the positioning of my stabilizer weights until I can get the shot that I'm looking for. Uh, the next question here is going to be from Douglas Walker. And he's... He's saying, I'd like to hear what causes a shooter to shoot six arrows at one spot and end up with three different two-arrow groups. Um, he said he's, ha he's had this problem happen to him uh, several times and it's driving him insane. Um, you think it has to do with your release hand and an inconsistent uh, anchoring, but you can't figure out why. So... Um, and you said that it definitely shows up more past 40 yards. So both of the things you said could definitely be part of that. Um, there's a few things here that I'm going to go through. One, yes, focusing on your release hand position and how your hand comes off your face and how you need to pull straight back and not come away or down. Uh, that can have a lot to do with it. Also, as people start to aim longer and harder and they start to kind of, their shot tends to start to take more time than what it normally would, some people get in the habit of starting to turn their face away from the target. Like as they're pulling the release, they're almost turning their jaw towards the release as they're pulling. And depending on where your arrow is set up on your face, as you turn your face, you can actually be applying pressure to the back of that arrow shaft to where sometimes that arrow has pressure on the back of it, sometimes it doesn't. A lot of times for people that where it happens at those longer distances, it's because your facial pressure tends to increase at those longer distances because you're starting to over-aim and you're starting to turn your head towards the string as you're trying to pull, 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 you're turning your head instead of keeping your head facing straight towards that target. Um, the reaction of your release hand as that release opens, certainly if you're going out away from your face or if you're coming down and then sometimes coming straight back, all three of those will definitely give you different results. But above and beyond all that, you really need to start numbering your arrows and start looking at could those arrows actually be grouping that way um, <clears throat> some people don't really put a lot of I guess uh, effort into knowing their arrow straightness as well as you know the plus or minus variances of those arrow shafts and I can tell you that having arrows that are within a certain weight and also a certain straightness will really come into play anytime you start getting past 40 yards. You gotta focus on that. You need to really pay good attention on exactly how your arrows are bundled and sorted together. Some of the arrows that you can get at the mass merchants, you know, you take a dozen of them and you spin them. Some of them have quite a bit of wobble and some of them don't. They're not near as pre-sorted. Um, you know, you really need to number your arrows and go through them. And if you have an arrow that's hitting outside of your groups consistently, then the first thing you can do is start out by trying to just turn that knock and index that knock to a different position on the shaft. Um, if it starts to come closer towards the group, then great. But if you have one arrow that just, you know, for whatever reason has a poor tolerance or has a poor uh, weight or straightness and it just isn't hitting with the rest of the group, then you need to just cull it and get it out of there. You know, use it for something that doesn't really matter. But sorting your arrows is something that you have to do. I always do it as a bow hunter. I'll go out and shoot my full dozen or shoot two dozen and see which ones are shooting the best with my practice broadheads. And what I'll do is I'll, you know, I'll normally then label them with a pen, you know, like with a different colored pen, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. If I have some that aren't shooting worth a dang, then I just will kind of mark them as, you know, bad. 
and use them to shoot stumps. Um, you know, the reality is the higher the speed you're shooting, which in today's society with today's bows, these bows are shooting so much faster. Um, all that stuff starts to magnify the variance in where your arrows land. So number your arrows, sort through them that way, make sure all your arrows are being fletched on the same fletching jig. If some of your arrows have a one degree offset and some have a one and a half degree offset, um, even arrows that have different color veins, I've seen different colors of veins actually have slightly different weights and groups slightly different. So all that stuff, you need to make sure when it comes to arrows that you have 12 cookie cutter arrows, have them all fletched on the same jig. Make sure you use the same exact veins and wraps, points, glues, everything. Then from there, number them, shoot them all, cull them out, and I think you're going to be a lot more happy with what your results are going to end up being. Next question here is from Jesse K. Fisher. Um, you're asking how I got my big break into the hunting show world. Um, can't say I got a big break. Um, I don't really kind of put myself in the... I have a hunting show, but to be honest with you, I've been filming my hunts for almost... 20 years now, uh, ever since I first had a handy cam in our family, I was always out trying to film hunts just because a lot of what I was seeing, people didn't believe me that was happening, or I'd tell them I shot this or that, people wouldn't believe it. So, um, I've been filming myself for a long time and, um, just had a compilation of that and actually, um, knock on was a concept that I came up with, um, with a good friend of mine, uh, mainly because we were trying to find a way to be able to, um, create a platform for me to educate people. Um, it just seemed like there was this big influx of people that would want to go and listen to a hunter simply because they had a hunting show and they thought that they were really the authority on information for shooting. Um, but in reality, a lot of the information that was being given was just really not good. Um, and I always kept saying, oh, that's not good information. That's going to do more damage than it is good. So we ended up coming up with uh, the idea to create this show and show some hunts uh, really with the intention of being able to educate and um, each year I've slowly decreased the amount of hunting on the show and increased the amount of education on the show which is really the direction that I want to go I would be perfectly happy hunting for myself um, that's what I've always done about it for the longest time when I was a competitor in target archery. Most of the people out there from foreign countries never, never even really needed to know that I hunted. Uh, I know that some people don't like it. I didn't even really want to put it in front of their face. Um, because I knew deep down that, uh, they just, their culture didn't understand hunting and the things, the stuff behind it. So, I would totally be happy hunting for myself and, and you know, sh sharing the stories with my good buddies or people who came over and I showed my home videos to. But really, the knock-on show is something that's out there to help educate and bring more information that I know helps people and not hurts people uh, to the industry. So... I guess if you're looking on how do you actually get a big break, I can just tell you from experience, um, every opportunity I've ever had in this industry has come from, one, being loyal to my brands, being open and honest, um, and staying 100% committed and doing it for the right reasons. Uh, there's a lot of people out there right now that aren't doing it for that, and quite frankly, I think their time will be short-lived. Uh, I've been in the industry a long, long time, and I've seen a lot of people come and go, 
and the ones that are around and the ones that people like and the ones that are good for the industry are the ones that are doing a lot of things to help people just as much as they are to have fun for themselves. Uh, next question here is from Miguel Angel uh, Veliz Jr. saying, Greetings from El Salvador. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that. Um, please talk about aiming exercises for target archery. So, um, one thing I'll tell you that really helped progress my ability to hold steady and aim my bow really, really well is when I started shooting field archery and I was forced to start learning to shoot with my front bow hand above and below my shoulder. If you get in the habit of shooting at fixed distances all the time where you're really only shooting with a a few degrees difference in your front arm elevation, you really start to limit the, uh, the ability for you to hold really steady in certain conditions. Um, and this, you know, also plays into the factor with wind. You know, if all of a sudden you start not having um, near uh, the ability to hold steady in the wind, it's probably because you haven't really strengthened those little stabilizer muscles in that front shoulder Um, that help you do that you know if you're always practicing in calm conditions or like I said your people that shoot on a full feet of course like people that shoot people that shoot um, 50 meters all the time and then all of a sudden have to shoot 90 meters at a tournament but they don't practice at 90 because they can't shoot 90 in their yard it's really hard for them I always try to practice at a lot tougher angles because it makes the flat angles and flat shots so much easier. Um, You know, focus on being able to have shots that allow you to shoot with a slight elevation. Um, Actually, a good friend of mine, Tom Collins, was having trouble um, with a certain spot on you know when he shot a certain way on a on a target face one of the spots he always seemed to have worse grouping on than the others so i just told him to start practicing with that spot in a different location on the target face and what you'll start to do is you know you'll start to build muscles to where you can actually shoot it at a different direction better than you can another direction you have to create that diversity in order to you know, create diversity in your ability to aim. Um, Also, I know that for myself, practicing with more arrows than what I need in a tournament was critical because there was times where I'd be at a tournament, we shoot six arrows per end, but then if the wind was bad, I may let down two times. And by the time I draw back again, which is really my ninth arrow, I was just completely exhausted and not able to hold solid on the target because of the fact I wasn't used to that endurance of shooting nine arrows in a row. If all you ever do is go and shoot three arrows, pull, three arrows, pull, three arrows, pull, you don't build up that stamina so that if you do end up letting down once or twice or you do end up holding for longer on one shot, during a tournament than what you normally hold for during your your shots uh, at your home range. You just don't build that stamina and you don't have that to fall back on. So, you know, I used to always practice for FIDA. I would always shoot 12 arrows at a time just to work on my stamina. I would shoot 12 shots in a row, walk down, shoot 12 more shots, um, you know, back the other direction. I would just shoot back and forth. I actually, on my my old range, um, I had a 90-meter target, uh, two 90-meter targets facing one another. So I would literally just stand next to one target, shoot 90 meters down, walk down, and then turn around and shoot 90 meters back. It really increased my volume and really helped me with my aiming. And if you're wanting to improve your, your FITA scores at those longer distances, you have to practice at those longer distances because you're actually having to hold your front bow arm slightly higher at an elevation, um, which is why a lot of people just feel so uncomfortable when they go to those those shots. 
And then this actually uh, reminds me of another question that I had sent in uh, via private message. Um, someone was talking to me saying I should talk a little bit about how to shoot close targets. Um, I think with redding just happening and then also I've heard of few novelty targets at some 3D shoots and stuff where people miss the real close shots. Um, so what happens when you have a really close shot is, you know, since your sight is above your arrow shaft, if you're shooting very close, um, say three feet or three yards, your arrow hasn't had time to climb enough um, to actually kind of come into where your sight pin is holding. So, um, you know, if you think about it, when your scope is um, above your arrow shaft, it, you know, it might be above your arrow shaft six or eight inches while your bow's at full at rest. So if you shoot a target really close, it's still going to be that far under where your scope is. So by pulling your scope closer to your arrow shaft for those really close shots, um, you're actually going to be able to hit in the same spot. So like for me, um, and you can learn this by having a program like Archer's Advantage or something where you print your sight tape scales out and you'll have you know your ballistic chart for what you need to do for your shorter distances. But like for me, like three yards was always like, uh, I would have to put my sight on like 52 yards in order to hit the exact center at like three steps. Um, and you start to learn that. And when I started shooting feet of field archery, I really learned um, all those little things. Uh, and then once I went to redding as well, you really start to learn all how to shoot those shorter distances. Um, and that kind of ties into learning to be sta stable or steady at those odd distances as well because if you go to a 3d shoot and all of a sudden you're shooting straight down at your feet and you're not used to practicing that way that can really make it super difficult to hold steady even at that super short shot because you're just not used to aiming in that direction when i was uh practicing for the for my first world field competition, um, I actually was really worried about some of the bunny shots at the shorter 10 and 15 meter distances on extreme angles, you know, like 50, 40, 50 degree shot angles. So um, I actually practice and make sure you do it safely if you did have to do this. But my old house was a two-story house, so I actually practiced for several days standing on the peak of my roof, shooting straight down to bunny faces that were 15 meters from uh, where I was standing straight down to where I was almost having to learn to shoot with my, the cam of my bow between my legs because the angle was so steep. And it's incredibly tough to be stable shooting like that. But because I practiced that way, when I came across those types of uh, shots, I didn't have any problems with it. So all those are great ways to learn to hold better. Um, next question here is from Tim Bovary. Um, says the longer he holds, the more his scope moves uh, to the right in his peep. Um so he's saying, so this is movement of the head, but how do you prevent it? Um, what I found is if you're holding a long time and you start to come out of your peep or come off the target to the right or to the left, a lot of times I've found that that can be managed by your foot position as well. Really focus on, uh, take a target face or something, flip it over so you have the white side facing up, and stand in a position and trace your feet on the floor, and then go ahead and start making some shots. And when that happens, um, over time, you know, if you just aren't really thinking about where your feet are, over time, if all of a sudden that happens, look down at where your feet are right then and see if for some reason you've changed your position. What I found is, if sometimes I close my stance more, meaning my front foot is further forward or, you know, I guess closing yourself off compared to your back foot, 
then a lot of times that'll end up making me naturally pull off to the right of the target. Whereas if I'm shooting more of an open stance on one shot versus the next, I'll actually start to want to pull to the left or come out to the left. Your head's still trying to stay in the fixed position, but because your front arm and your body's fighting your torso, you end up pulling your bow kind of out of that thing, but you're trying to, you know, your head and your face position is all secure. But because that leverage is way out on the front arm, if your stance is not in the right position, it'll naturally start to pull you off there. That's why I really like to shoot with a neutral stance and why I always look down at my feet before I make any shot. I want to make sure that my feet look like they're in the correct position and I want to make sure they feel right. If you're trying to go against what your feet and what your torso are naturally doing, you're going to have difficulties coming out of that sight to the right or to the left. Um, you also asked about uh, D-loops versus a torqueless D-loop, uh, and you're saying, is it more forgiving to have the torqueless D-loop um, when your draw hand is a bit more flat or straight, or I guess you're probably meaning vertical or straight. So yeah, the more vertical your release hand, the more pressure you're going to put on your string. So obviously you would be at a bigger advantage to have a torqueless D loop if you naturally shoot with your hand like straight up and down, say like Jeff Hopkins. Whereas if you shoot with your hand flat or slightly flat, there's a lot less need to have that torqueless D loop. Also, the length of your loop plays in pretty big. Um, the longer your D loop, the more you're able to twist it without it actually twisting your string. Um, what I can tell you is on my mouth tab, I actually noticed that I need to lengthen my loop some on my mouth tab bow right now because the other day, um, I put an arrow in my bow to pull back. It was actually the last day of my trip. Um, someone was asking me how I pulled my bow back, so I just put an arrow in the bow and pulled it back to show them um, because I've seen too many bows be dry fired for no apparent reason. So I put a bow in there just for safety, or an arrow in there for safety, bit on the tab, pulled the bow back, and the arrow actually came off the rest and was kind of up in the air and kind of slightly turning to the side. Um, but that arrow did not have a point on it, which is something that I've talked about in the past on how I check my knock pinch and actually my the amount of pressure my loop is putting on the string. I have a very short loop on this bow because I have that mouthpiece. But what I'm finding now that I saw this is I could probably really help my accuracy with that bow if I lengthen that loop some to where when I bite on it, it isn't twisting the string or contorting the string. Uh, a slightly longer loop will be able to make that happen. Um, you know, I personally like D loops just because they're easier to put on, they're easier to manage. Some people don't really know how to put those on, uh, the torqueless ones on, so a D loop would be a lot easier. Uh, but if you are a person that shoots with a vertical hand position and you're twisting around quite a bit as you come to full draw, then that torqueless D loop could definitely be better for you. Um, Matthew J is asking, um, actually several of you asked about, uh, good reads for mental toughness, um, and how to work on your mental game. To be honest with you on this, um, I've tried several different mental game books when it comes to archery. I've had a lot of different coaches and uh, sports psychologists that I've dealt with over the years on a lot of different athletic levels. Um, personally, I found a lot more benefit to reading some of the books um, that I found at Barnes and Noble on sports psychology um, and not specific to archery, just mainly in uh, sports psychology in general. There are several good ones in the running section. Um, and I've, I've tried some of the archery related ones. 
Um, I've certainly worked and talked with a few people like Lanny Basham uh, years ago, but um, and there were definitely things that were helpful with that. The main thing is when it comes to your mind, uh, you just got to be able to dive in there, commit to it, and do it. Um, I don't think there's anything that I'm going to tell you that you can pick up and go read that's going to completely change it. I think what you need to do when it comes to your mental strength in your tournament archery or if you're a hunter is you need to focus on being able to balance the three aspects of your archery, um, which I categorize as um, the physical, meaning your practice as well as your body preparation, the mechanical, which is your all of your equipment and your setup and your shooting form, and then also your mental um, I think a lot of people don't balance those. They'll, some people are just bow tinkers, and they're always getting the latest equipment, the latest gear, um, or they're just totally focused on shooting tons of arrows, working out, just shooting all day long, shooting every day, but they never focus on those other two aspects. And then there's some archers that are just naturally super solid and awesome on the mental side. And I can tell you that those archers, if you're super strong in the mental side, a lot of times that makes up for weakness on the mechanical or the physical side. Um, whereas if you're rock solid on the physical side but don't have the mechanical and don't have the physical, you don't get near the results. So I always focused on having one type of sports psychologist book uh, in the house, normally by the toilet, because that's kind of the only time I'm going to read something. And uh, I would just make it a point to put a new one in there every year and kind of read through it and work through it. Um, and then obviously if you're a higher level archer, you might have the ability to work with some of the mental coaches, which could really, really help you out. So I've got uh, several more questions here, but I'm going to go ahead and wrap this podcast up and go ahead and keep plugging away and cranking out another one. So thanks, everybody, for uh, these great questions, and I certainly hope that they helped you. And uh, make sure you tune in to the next podcast. Thanks, everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com